Last week, we did the big deep dive into the bird's nest model of employer brand. The idea that since an employer brand exists only in a candidate's or person's mind, and it is built based on what's laying around, based on what the touch points and experiences specific to that person are, you really gotta understand all the experiences and touch points that build that perception, right? And all those perceptions are not the same. First, you know, when a person is not really a candidate yet, they're just simply absorbing information passively, kind of in an osmosis kind of way. They're learning about your company and maybe the products and maybe they see you on the news or maybe they see something from a recruiter, what have you. It just kind of comes in and starts to begin to subconsciously set a frame about who you are. Then as they start looking for a job and maybe they see a job from you, they start to dive in. They start to become more active in their approach of learning about you. They're doing their research. They're asking around. They're diving in. They're actively absorbing information. At this stage, the information and the touch points they receive are more impactful than the ones when they were passive, right? When you just hear, oh, a company did a thing. Okay, cool, whatever. Whatever, it doesn't really matter. But if you're doing research and you go, oh, the company did this thing, they're involved in the action. They care about the outcomes. It matters to them because this might be a company they apply for. Final section is when they are a candidate, during the candidate experience kind of journey. This is when their eyes are most open, they're absorbing lots of information because they know they're getting answers to their questions. They know that how the hiring manager acts dictates a lot of what the culture is going to be, right? If they pass the hiring manager on the grocery store, what information would be you know, kind of conveyed? Almost none, but in an interview situation, the hiring manager just even subtle cues, even looking at their phone or not looking at their phone, kind of keeping with you know timeliness or kind of staying late, whatever, that impacts the perception. So today we're gonna to talk about where all those perceptions come from because while the bird's nest kind of metaphor really helps set the stage of how a brand is, impression is made, we have a lot more to talk about. And that's what we'll talk about when we come right back. Hey everybody, James Ellis here. Welcome back to The Talent Cast. It's season two, which means we're doing the audiobook podcast version of Talent Chooses You, a book I wrote. So enjoy. Uh, the entire season two project of, be- of uh, turning the book into an audiobook is brought to you by recruitmentmarketing.com, the community for recruitment marketers. So go check them out. I will say that by the time you hear this, I will have done my first Ask Me Anything with recruitmentmarketing.com. That would have happened Uh, I believe yesterday, if you're downloading this the day I launched it, which you don't have to, I guess. Uh, But there's, uh, I believe, three more. So go sign up and you can ask me questions. Also, if you are really serious about employer brand, if you care about employer brand, if it's part of your job, if you want to know how to get better, if you just simply want to keep your edge, go sign up for my newsletter. It's employer brand headlines. You can go to uh, employerbrand.news, or you can go to employerbrandheadlines.substack.com. It is free. It lands every Monday morning to help make you better at your employer brand by feeding you information and ideas that, you know, that's a lot of work to put together. So let me kind of serve it up to you. All right, let's get into the epi- the, the edition, the episode, the actual meat of uh, the meal here. Where do all of those brand perceptions come from? Well, if you look at all the sources of employer brand touch points, and you kind of saw all of that bird's nest thing and thought, how does anybody actually manage an employer brand when nothing is actually in their control? 
right? You thought those touch points like what the recruiter says, what the hiring manager does, what the news is, what the leadership does, all that stuff is way out of your purview. That is not something you have direct connection to. These are the touch points that feed perception and they come from every level and every department, from every office of the company. Now, some like news and rating sites are 100% external and it may feel like taking control of the brand is the same as trying to map a cloud as it floats through the sky. It's not the worst metaphor in thinking of how you're gonna approach this job. But all these touch points, regardless of what channel delivers them, come from a single core source. And this is what's interesting. Every product decision, every customer service interaction, every news story, every recruiter interaction stems from or is a reflection of your company culture. Now, let's talk about culture for a second because culture is one of those words, you know, like strategy or innovation or caring that people throw around willy-nilly with an assumed meaning, right? If I say culture, I know what I mean, but do you know what I mean? Ultimately, these words don't really have a lot of meaning, at least no, not a lot of shared meaning, because what I think of as culture is not necessarily what you think of as culture. So we're passing the word back and forth as if we're talking about the same thing, but we're not, right? Allowing an employee to, to, to share a beer on Friday or, you know, putting values on the walls as poster size or bringing in the foosball table, that is not culture, right? We all understand that by now. Hopefully um, enough people, including myself, have banged that particular drum that culture is not the foosball table. And why we stuck with foosball table, I, you know, the, it was a wild time five or six years ago. Everybody seemed to have a foosball table. That's how we were hiring the hot coders at the time. Anyway, your culture, to be clear, is your company's DNA. It's the self-reinforcing machine that dictates what the company likes and dislikes, regardless of the team, regardless of the level, regardless of the role. Think of it as the connective tissue between individuals. Usually it's only obvious when decisions are being made by groups or you know, when individual people choose to not make a decision allowing something else to happen or something to continue. Culture is the, gosh, the, the abstract means by which decisions get made when there's no clear authority and no clear decider there. So for example, you put four people in a room, how do they choose what goes on a pizza? That's the culture. Does one person step up and say, you know what? I'm, uh, uh, what's it, celiac? I have celiac disease and I can't have wheat, so it must be a gluten-free uh, pizza. And if you don't, I won't be able to eat any of it. And they become the de facto leader or at least the de facto veto. That becomes the culture. If the four people say, okay, we're all vegetarians and but I don't like mushrooms. Does anybody say, well, everybody else really likes mushrooms and you let's, let's, let's work some compromises. That's the culture. If somebody says, screw pizza, I want burritos. That's the culture. That's just how that works. So think of it in business terms. When the CEO decides that a company is going to focus on, um, how about, uh, more hiring a more diverse workforce. That's the decision of an individual in an authoritative position. But does that always happen when a CEO announces that, you know, like doing all hands, they do a quarterly meeting and they say, this is what we're going to do. Does it always happen? That's the culture. For example, when they say we're going to hire a new workforce, or no, I'm sorry, sorry, a more diverse workforce, and they're not actually in the interviews, if they're not actually on the interview panels, if they're not actually selecting candidates for the, for the uh, interview pool, does the recruiter, does the hiring manager actually build a diverse pool? 
That's the culture. If the CEO says it and no one does it, that's the culture. That's how it works. When the CHRO announces that there's a zero tolerance sexual harassment policy, but people still perceive the company as being a bit of a boys club, that's the DNA, the underlying DNA. Not the conscious, this is who we wanna be or this is how we want people to perceive us, but the gut level DNA lizard brain stuff that says, I'm, this is the thing I'm gonna do, right? I might say, I'm not gonna eat cake because cake is unhealthy for me. That is a rational thought. But uh, my lizard brain might say, you know what? I'm really frustrated. I need some sugar. Oh, give me the cake. Guess who's in charge? Lizard brain. If I didn't eat the cake, the lizard brain's not in charge. That's how culture works. If you build a highly funded marketing campaign around how much you love your customers, but you don't get customer service teams to, I don't know, embrace it, you don't give them the resources so they can actually help their customers, or you keep their metrics and promotions tied to how many calls they take rather than actual net promoter score, guess what? That initiative of, hey, we care about customers, dead on arrival. Think of it this way. Cultures is what makes decisions when there's no one there making the decision, when there's no one person. Sure, the CEO wants a diverse workforce, but if they're not there to select the candidate, what happens when the CHRO says we're going to have this new policy, but the managers aren't making the same kind of choices? What's the culture? The culture is often unseen, but it often drives so much of what the company does. Not only that, it's this, think of it as a sieve. It's a filter, right? The culture elevates the people who align with the culture and drives out those who don't fit. Now, I know culture fit is a bit of a buzzword and a dangerous term. And we're not talking about, do you look and sound like us? Not a, hey, we're a bunch of white dudes and you're a black woman. You better change your tone of voice and you better change how you speak in order to be a culture fit. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about code switching. We're not talking about belonging. It's not really what that is. It means when you actually embrace the culture and you live that culture and you support that culture, the culture should elevate you. If you don't align to it, if you're always pushing against it, the culture, culture should filter you out. So when a great talent decides it's time to move on, they may not be able to point to a boss or inciting incident to say, that's why I'm leaving. But maybe it was the perception of the way talent likes to work and that wasn't valued by that company. I mean, for example, if a hard charging employee is getting great work done, they may feel like they're fighting against the whole be nice to each other at, whole, at all costs kind of culture that values feelings over impact. Now, there's nothing wrong with either of those positions, the be super competitive, hard charging person versus the be nice to each other at all costs. They both are different kinds of approaches. Neither one is good, neither one is bad, but they are not good fits. The culture of the company tells the employee that the long-term success won't be found there because the way they work doesn't align with the way a lot of other people work. And as that person leaves, that doubly reinforces the culture by the people who stick around. If you have a culture of everybody has to be nice to each other, but the nicest people leave, guess what? You're watering down the culture. If you have the same culture and you start to push away the people who are hard chargers, you're reinforcing the culture. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Now, culture isn't magical, but it is kind of spontaneous, right? You put three people in a room, you know, back to the pizza example, a culture exists no matter how tenuous. You, you put three uh, hard-charging sales sharks, people who are super competitive, that's the culture. You get this competition-driven atmosphere, right? They're super, super competitive. They're maybe even cutthroat. They're really, really uh, aggressive with each other. That's the culture. Not because anybody said, hey, everybody, let's have a conversation about how our culture should be. No, just putting those three people in that room, that's how culture works. Now, if you put three lawyers in a room, the culture is going to be far more risk averse than competitive. I mean, depending on the kind of lawyers. If it's a uh, like a partnership at a law firm, maybe that is super competitive. If you're an in-house legal team, that's going to be more risk averse. But that culture dictates who's going to succeed and who's going to fail. It's true that culture starts with the founders, who they are, what they like, what do they value, all those things influence that culture. So if they started a company trying to save the world, they're going to hire people who are really interested in saving the world, right? They're choosing who to bring into the room. And remember, the people in the room dictate the culture. If they're fame-seeking, they're going to naturally find themselves attracted to like-minded folks, and that becomes the culture. The culture is self-reinforcing as people are promoted and rewarded who align with those values, who align with those motivations, who fit within that culture. The people who don't are held back or they leave. Simple as that, self-reinforcing. The decisions of leadership of who to hire, who to reward, who to promote, tells the rest of the room what it takes to get the rewards and people adjust accordingly. If the leader stands up and says, hey everybody, we're gonna be a super nice culture, it's a no jerks, no zero tolerance jerk policy, but the person who gets promoted is a bit of a jerk, but they got promoted because they made the most sales. Guess what the culture is? The culture is make the sales no matter what. Don't worry about what the CEO says. What they really care about is the sales numbers, not whether you're a jerk or not. Ignore what was stated. Look at what gets rewarded. That's the culture. Want to tell women that you value their leadership? Say it all you want, but until you start promoting women, uh, yeah, you're just talking a lot. The culture overrides any one person's desire to change the culture. It is a collective feeling. It's collective proclivities that move the company beyond a single leader's mandate. When they say culture eats strategy for breakfast, this is what they mean. It's the unwritten rules and laws and drivers that determine their future. Not, not what the leader says or not what the leader says it's going to be. The people in the room collectively make the culture. Now, this explains why change is so hard to ha- make it happen at companies. 
Because not only do you need executive buy-in that you want this change to happen, but you need to change every element of the company below that. They need to buy in. Incentives have to evolve. Talking points, language has to change. One key employee digging their heels in to will kill the best funded, best promoted, and best communicated change just by virtue of how they embrace or extend the culture. If that one person gets fired, you've just reinforced this new culture you're trying to do. If that person can dig their heels in and nothing bad happens to it, you've just told the organization, yeah, we really don't care about this, this uh, initiative. Not so much. I mean, yeah, it would be nice to have. I mean, sure, it'd be good. I mean, yeah, let's try that, but if, don't try too hard. And when that person doesn't get fired, I guess it's okay. This is why good employer branding thinking starts by trying to understand the existing culture. You are in the change business, but changing the culture is probably not the way to start. That's, that's, a, that's a big ask. But the culture is the engine that creates the product. It sets the customer service tone. The leadership decisions end up in the news and don't, or don't end up in the news. How a recruiter does their job, how a hiring manager talks about the new role, how current and former staff talk about their jobs or how satisfied they were. All of those channels that drive employer brand perception way back in those bird's nests. I mean, at least on the company side of things, they all start with the company culture. Those are the seeds from which all of your employer brand flowers bloom or sprout or I don't know, I'm not a plant guy. So we talked about the Camry, right? This idea that, um, you know, the Camry has a car, is that if you, it's super kind of whatever, it's a, it's comfortable, it's safe, it's, it's, you know, it's two Barca loungers strapped to a very reliable engine. Let's go back to that for a second. If you wanted to sell more Camrys, you might think people love sports cars. So I should tell the world that this Camry is an amazing sports car. Makes sense, right? If you know people want that thing, you just reposition your product to fill that need. The problem is if people don't see the Camry as a sports car, not only will sports car buyers kind of say, yeah, that's, that's, that's not a sports car. What are you talking about? But the people who were looking for a safe, reliable, comfortable car are going to say, wait, it's a Camry. Why are you calling a sports car? Maybe this isn't what I want. And they walk away too. So your repositioning against the grain of what that product was all about kind of undercuts everything about it. And you lose both audiences, the people you were trying to sell in terms of calling the car a sports car and the people who were going to buy the Camry anyway because it wasn't a sports car. They were looking for something reliable and you're saying it's a sports car now. It doesn't fit. Try to build a brand that doesn't align, doesn't align to the DNA of the product it's a fast journey to destroying positive brand awareness. The same goes for an employer brand. If you think back to Uber, back when Uber was, yikes, uh, I think it was 2017, the CEO was caught screaming in a driver, various reports of rampant sexual harassment, a culture of visiting strip clubs, you know, as a business expense were abounded. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And that, you know, not just the blog post of, oh, I don't remember her name, but uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. You couldn't have jumped into that job as employer brander and say, let's talk about how much Uber cares. It's kind of like saying the Camry's a sports car. It just wouldn't have stuck. It would have felt like a desperate attempt to kind of whitewash and slow down what everybody already was seeing in the news and on the rating sites. At best, it would have been, you know, just a half-hearted kind of change, but one that never went anywhere. 
Leadership might dictate there was a new way of doing things, but culture drives all of those touch points. If the culture says it's okay to sexually harass people and you don't get fired for it, guess what? That's the culture. If the culture says leadership can scream at employees and that's completely acceptable, guess what? That's the culture. Say that you think this company cares all you want. There's too many data points that say otherwise. So the employer brand manager in that case has a choice. They can either align the employer brand message to what is really happening or, I don't know, pray for lightning bolts. You know, maybe that one strikes the CEO or maybe there's magic in the culture and leadership changes. That's really your only choice. Uber's employer brand could have said, hey, we're a locker room. Uh, uh, what's the, the, the language? Uh, that's the way guys talk, right? We could say that's, what, that's who we are. We're an alpha male kind of atmosphere. We're a ribald and sexually aggressive workplace. Sure, why not? There are people who would think that was great. And some of them are incredibly talented. That would attract those people. But... In the case of Uber, what they were worried about is that while it might attract a certain audience of employees, what it was doing was dragging down the public image of what the company was all about, right? Uber was trying to say, hey, everybody, we're not just getting all these taxi cab owners and medallion holders in New York City fired and give them no jobs. We're, we're a safe alternative. We can work with you. We're, we're collective. We can be helpful. We don't have to, you know, uh, move fast and break things like some companies would. But if their employer brand and all their employees are doing all this sexually aggressive stuff, if they're harassing people, if their CEO is screaming, you can't have that public brand of we actually care about our customers and we care about our drivers and we care about the people we're displacing and have that happen. Leadership was saying, wow, if we can't get a hold of some of these stories internally, no one is going to buy our product. That was the challenge. So in the end, Uber's leadership was very publicly changed, right? Dara took over a new job, he had a lot of work to do, right? That was a very public switch over and a very public announcement of what Dara wanted to do in that company. Now that was five years ago and a lot of things have changed to my understanding. I don't work there, I don't know anybody directly who works, I actually don't think, I must I must know someone who works there. Uh, sorry if, if I don't remember you, uh, <laughs> not related. Um, but it isn't something you just mandate away. It took a long time to change the culture. It took a long time to say, yeah, everybody knows that that person's a little too sexually aggressive at the, at the workplace, but they're a real good coder, so we keep them around. Guess what? You're undercutting what you say you want to happen, okay? Building a brand impression that has no basis in fact, that has no connection to what was clear to everybody, again, it's like calling the Camry a sports car. It would have killed the entire brand. I mean, if you put it another way, it doesn't matter how many Drake or Post Malone t-shirts I might wear, but I'm never going to convince anybody I'm 23, or cool for that matter. In that instance, the smart play is to lean into who you are, or who I am, I guess in this case, and attract like-minded folks. There is an audience for people who want to hear more about employer brand. I've People listen to this podcast. People read the books. People listen to the newsletter. I play to that audience. At no point am I trying to sound cool. If you read the newsletter, I'm pointing at weird songs from the 80s because that's one of the musical periods I love and can speak to. And it's just, hey, I'm not trying to be cool. I'm not going to give you any Dua Lipa. I'm not going to give you anybody brand new. I'm not going to give you what's hot. That's not what I'm about. I'm an older dude. I love this kind of music. 
and there's an audience for it. Really, nobody cares about the music because they're really here for the employer brand stuff. Thanks, everybody. That's really what we had to talk about next week. Next week. Oh, I'm excited for next week. Next week, we dive deep into the employer brand architecture. This is a little technical. It's a little nitty gritty. It's a little complicated. But wow, when you figure this out, you start to really understand how you can make a big impact on how to change your employer brand. We'll talk about that next week. Talk to you later. Bye. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.